Mark chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 39, the powerful ministry of the Messiah. What would it be to spend a day, what would it be like to spend a day with Jesus? (laughs) I was in a class many years ago, and they asked the question, they said, if you could live in any time in history, what would be the time frame or the time period that you would like to live? And, you know, people had some different answers. But mine was Jesus and others as well, because I would just like to spend one day. (laughs) Now, the good news is we're not going to just spend one day with him. We have an eternity to get to know him. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Oh, that's awesome. But these guys, when they signed on the dotted line, they had no idea (laughs) what they were in for. And right out of the gate, we're going to watch Jesus go into synagogues and begin to minister around the Sea of Galilee. And I think that if you were able to snap some pictures of Peter and Andrew and James and John, their eyes would have been as wide as saucers. (laughs) They would have been, whoa! Maybe there were some side conversations like, I'm not sure this is what I signed up for. How about you? You ever had that experience in your Christian life? You know, you... You have an idea of what it might be like to serve the Lord, and then you get into the trenches a little bit, and you're like, wow, (laughs) help me, Lord. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we need your help so desperately, but thank you that the power of the Holy Spirit is in our lives. If we are believers, we are uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we can be filled to overflowing every single day as we serve you, Lord. As we watch Jesus in action, we want to get to know Jesus better. We might have an idea of what he's like or who he is, but Lord, we want to know him better. And the pages of the scriptures tell us who he is and what he really cared about and what his heart was like and his beautiful touch of outcasts and his powerful words. Nobody ever spoke like he spoke. And Lord, it's so good to know that when we open the pages of the Bible, you speak. This is your God-breathed word. So I pray that our ears would be tuned into your voice and that we'll never be the same because we hear what you have to say. In Jesus' mighty name I pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Mark 1, verse 21. Mark 1, 21. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath... Jesus entered the synagogue and began to teach. Now, the phrase they would incorporate at least the four fishermen that have been recruited by Jesus. They've responded to the call. The call has been, follow me. In the uh, opening section of Mark's gospel, if you look at Mark 1.15, we are told that Jesus came out of the gate really saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And then as he was going along, he called the two sets of brothers that were fishermen. And he called them to himself and he said, follow me and I will make you become, sounds like a process, and we looked at that process last Sunday, I will make you become fishers of men. I don't know where you are in that process. I don't know how seriously you've taken that call. I don't know if you see yourself as somebody who's involved in the fishing expedition of being fishers of men and women. But that's what you ought to be. Many years ago, uh, I was teaching a class on evangelism. There was a wonderful saint in that class. Um, She was a nurse, and she 
had been serving the Lord for many, many years, but she admitted in the class that she had never led anybody to Christ, and she had, a, uh, had been a Christian for decades, taught Sunday school. And so um, in the class, the, the uh, curriculum said, if you ever find yourself in a place for more than a minute where you're alone with someone, that is God's sign that you should witness to them. <laughs> and so she was in, uh, she did x-rays and that kind of thing, and she was in a back room, and uh, she was kind of watching her watch, and it was getting louder and louder, click, click, click. And she was with a new employee, and they were doing some training together, another female. And so it hit the minute mark, and she took a big gulp and said, okay, <laughs> have you ever been to church before? Do you have a church? She tried to use some opening line. And as she began to reach out to this woman, the woman broke down in tears. And she said, you know, I've been going through a lot of stuff and I've been thinking about God and that lady had a prime time opportunity to witness to this woman. Oftentimes we don't realize that there are opportunities around us everywhere if we're just willing to take a step of faith. Often we're fearful, what's somebody going to say? Hey, if you just ask somebody in California, hey, do you attend a local church? That's a pretty uh, non-threatening question, isn't it? It's a way to get a conversation going. And you never know what might happen if you just reach out. You're missing a big part of the Christian life if you don't reach out with the gospel. Because Jesus has defined the church's mission, and that is to go into all the world, all the nations, and preach the gospel. In fact, Mark 16, 15, and this is the end of the gospel of Mark, he says, Go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And in Matthew's gospel, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Now, I've been telling you that in Mark's gospel, what we have is we kind of have a wilderness tradition that emerges in the first 13 verses. And in the wilderness tradition, we've watched the Messiah retrace the footsteps of fallen Israel and do what they failed to do. We could see that at his baptism in the Jordan. We could see that on the Mount of Transfiguration with the glory cloud where God affirms him. I'm well pleased in him. Listen to his voice. We can see that in the 40-day temptation or testing in the wilderness where where Israel failed, Jesus what? Conquers. And he uses the word, single Greek word is gegraptai. It is written, it stands written, and the devil could do nothing against him. Where Israel failed, the Lord succeeded. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. That's in the prophecy of the, the servant in Isaiah 49. But they largely failed to become that light. They failed because they did not heed the warnings of Almighty God. And over and over again in Deuteronomy 18 and other places through Moses, God said, do not learn to practice what the peoples of these nations do. Do not embrace their practices for they will pull you down. On Friday, we did a study from Proverbs 7, and there's a warning there about the adulteress, and the one writing it is Solomon, and Solomon is warning his son not to be snared by a foreign woman who flatters with the mouth, yet he was snared by that. In 1 Kings 11, the story of Solomon is told, and it says that he loved many foreign women, and those foreign women turned his heart away from God to the degree that the wisest man that ever lived, except for Jesus himself, began to put idols on high places. In fact, there's a scripture in 1 Kings 11, if you want to go back and look at it later, where it says that he put a detestable idol up on the Mount of Olives. 
Can you imagine that? Solomon. He knew better. When God offered him a blank check, whatever you want, Solomon, I'll give you. He said, I want wisdom. And the Lord said, because you didn't ask for wealth and other things, I'll give you wisdom plus. And Solomon had everything. But he failed. Instead of him being a light to others, and remember, many people were coming to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Those people sucked him down. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations and they mingled with those nations and those nations ensnared them in their net. And rather than them being a testimony of God and his truth, um, the nations ensnared them. Turn to Psalm 106. If you hold your place in Mark, Psalm 106. This is a recounting of the history of Israel and this happens in several of the Psalms. Psalms 10, Psalm 106. Let's look at verse 35 where we get this testimony of what happened to Israel. And just so we can understand the warning, it can happen to us. In fact, it has happened to us. I don't know if you realize how much you are influenced by the world's practices. It's happened to us. It's happened to me. Because I live in this world and it's hard not to be captivated by the things of this world. And in Psalm 106, look at verse uh, 35. It says, they mingled, Psalm 106, 35, with the nations. They learned and learned their practices, 106, 36, and served their idols, which became, what? A snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to who? To the demons. And shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. And this is a key phrase for our text. Thus they became unclean in their practices. We're going to see Jesus deal with an unclean spirit in Mark 1 and a leper who was unclean. And it says they became unclean in their practices and they played the harlot, in their deeds. Go back to Mark chapter 1. So here comes Jesus. And Jesus is the master of undoing consequences of bad choices. Praise God. I mean, I made a ton of bad choices before I came to Christ. But he has undone those. And he's, not every consequence goes away, but he's given me beauty for ashes. And that's the hope that we have. That's why the Messiah has come. 1 John 3.8 says he came to destroy the works of the devil. It says, uh, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Write this down, 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus has come to make people whole again. To make people whole again. But there are many, many people who heard Jesus' preaching in the first century and did not turn from their sin. Many people experienced that day in the life of Jesus that we all might long for to go back in time. But more than that, some people heard him for months. Some people followed him around for quite a long time. And then when he gave a difficult teaching in John 6, they walked away. They didn't want to follow anymore. And Jesus said, follow me. That's the key. Follow me. They were, uh, they being Peter, James, uh, John, and Andrew, They were fishermen in training, not in the area of expertise. They were going to become fishers of men and women. 
And they were going to see Jesus' power and authority on display. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says, In Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, Colossians 2, 9 and 10, for he is the head over all rule and all authority. Is he your authority? Well, here's Jesus in action, and he's going to come to this area called Capernaum. Uh, look back in your Bible. And they, Mark one twenty one, went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Not only do they get to spend a day with Jesus, but it's a Sabbath day. They get to see how Jesus worshipped, or what it was like to go to church with Jesus. That'd be pretty cool, huh? What was it like? Was he just simply spectating? Or was he engaged? Well, before Jesus uh, comes to Capernaum, he actually preached in the synagogue at his own hometown. This is recorded in Luke 4. Go there, if you would. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 4. Jesus um, has faced the enemy, and he comes to the synagogue in his own town of Nazareth. So it says, look at Luke 4.14. Jesus returned, Luke 4.14, to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came, Luke 4.16, to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city. Now keep in mind, this is his hometown. This is where he grew up. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. You see, not only did they reject Jesus and kick him out of his hometown, they intended to kill him. Can you imagine I know pastors have had tough days. <laughs> I know sometimes we get angry emails. But it's quite another thing to be ushered out to the edge of your hometown, to the brow of a hill, 
so that they might cast you down after you preached a couple of hard things. Did you notice that everybody was speaking well of him until he got a little straight with them, (laughs) got in their face a little bit, and then they didn't like it and they wanted to kill him. We have a culture today who does not want to hear a differing point of view. They only want you to accept their view. The moment you give an alternative view that's not popular in the winds of culture, look out. Look out. There will be people, you will become their target even though you are simply just quoting what the Bible says. Interestingly enough, in Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, they had two goats. They, had, they called one the scapegoat and then one was a goat sacrifice for the nation. And the high priest on the Day of Atonement would lay his hands on the head of a goat and he would confess the sins of the nation and then they would lead that goat interestingly enough, off into the wilderness. And the picture was that the goat was carrying away the sins of the people. But they found something kind of like a dog and cat that you might not necessarily want to come home. (laughs) They found that the goat turned around and started coming back to the temple area. So this was a problem because, at least symbolically, he was supposed to be carrying all the sins of the people. Not good when the sins start coming back. He's supposed to be the scapegoat. So what they did to ensure that he would not come back home to the temple was they would take the scapegoat to the brow of a hill and they would throw him off. I know it sounds brutal, but the goat would die at the bottom of the hill so as not to return with the sins of the people. And in Jesus' own hometown, they took him to the brow of a hill and they were intending to throw him off the hill. You see, Jesus is our scapegoat. And he's fulfilling this imagery in our Bibles right in front of our eyes. It's amazing. His own hometown didn't want to hear it. And we all, I started this sermon by saying, wouldn't it be cool just one day, right? Wouldn't it be cool to hear a sermon Jesus preached? Well, these people said, not so cool. Didn't like it. And they took him to the brow of the hill in order to throw him down. But passing through their midst, Verse 30, he went his way and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. You see, Jesus, if you go back to Mark, would adopt Capernaum as his own hometown because his own people kicked him out. And Capernaum, Matthew 9, verse 1, became Jesus' own city, kind of his adoptive city. Um, Jim, if you're ready, I want to show you just a couple pictures of the area of Capernaum. So um, remember that much of Jesus' ministry took place around the Sea of Galilee, and Capernaum is a fishing village just on the northwest uh, upper uh, part of the Sea of Galilee. Kind of a diverse population. Keep on going, Jim. There you get an aerial view. So not not very big, but um, very significant place. If, If you've been to Israel, you know Capernaum is usually part of the trip and you get to go to Peter's fish house in Capernaum if you're a fish eater and when they put the fish on your plate it is looking back at you so if you have problems with that they have option b you can order pizza in Capernaum anyway let's keep going this is an ancient synagogue that dates very early in fact uh, they don't believe that the, the ruins of the synagogue in Capernaum dates back to the time of Jesus, but they do believe that the lower portion dates back to the synagogue 
in Jesus' time. So not the entire structure. It was probably built on top of, but the actual foundation stones, if you will, uh, date back to the time of Jesus. So this gives you an idea of what a synagogue would look like. And Jesus was probably standing here preaching to the people of Capernaum. It's quite thrilling when you find yourself on a place on the earth where you think that your feet might be walking somewhere close where Jesus did. Keep on going, Jim. And you can see some of those foundation uh, stones. This actually is a picture, I believe, of uh, what they call Peter's house. And Peter was originally from Bethsaida, according to John chapter 1, but it seems like he landed in Capernaum as well, along with the partners in the fishing business, James and John. So this is the location where Jesus is. And so he's now in Capernaum, having been kicked out of his own hometown. Look at verse 22. He's there on the Sabbath day. He begins to teach. Teaching was a priority for Jesus' ministry, Mark 1.22. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. One writer said, Jesus didn't just preach about God's word. Jesus preached the word. And there is a difference. Jesus didn't just talk about what different uh, leaders or rabbis believed. Rabbi so-and-so says this, but Rabbi so-and-so counters that with this. And somebody in the middle is Rabbi so-and-so who believes this. No, Jesus said, you've heard it said of old, but I say to you. And people went, whoa. (laughs) Rabbis in history, in fact, were often proud to say that they had never spoken any word that was just something that they came up with. They always preached in quotation marks, but not Jesus. Jesus spoke with authority. And people who came to the synagogue week after week were used to just hearing the quotes. Maybe there was a lot of snoring going on in the synagogue. I don't know. (whistles) Rabbi so-and-so says this, but Rabbi so-and-so... And Jesus said, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. I say to you, and people were like, whoa, hair blown back a little bit. Wow. He preaches with authority. They were amazed. And just then, look at verse uh, 23. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. Now, I don't know if there were some amens and hallelujahs going on as Jesus preached, but then there was a kind of a shriek, an unhappy shriek, because a man with an unclean spirit was in the synagogue, and he couldn't handle the light. He couldn't handle the authoritative preaching. He must have sat there quietly week after week as people quoted the rabbis, but the moment that the Son of God began preaching, he couldn't handle it. Have you ever lifted up a rock in your backyard and there's bugs that look like you don't even you haven't even seen the species before and they all scatter? <laughs> well, that's kind of I think what was going on in that synagogue. The light came and the demon that was inside this man just went. <laughs> Can you imagine being in the synagogue that day? Wow, you won't believe. You shouldn't have missed today, man. Yeah, but the football game, what did the football game? With the... I'm just telling you, you shouldn't have stayed home. And here's this man. Luke calls the man possessed by a, the spirit of an unclean demon. You know, I, 
begin to look at the gospel accounts, and I know a lot of you have wrestled with a lot of the scriptures, and I begin to think of the number of exorcisms and demons that Jesus sent out of people in Israel. And I stepped back this week and said, Lord, what in the world was happening in this place that you designated as the special place that you picked out of all the nations of the world in Jerusalem to have your name be there forever? What happened to these people? This seems like a third world country when Jesus is there. You know how some of us hear missionary reports and we hear of missionaries running into demon-possessed people and we're like, sheesh, it must be dark and something. And then we get a little background and we hear, well, there's voodoo going on or there's black magic or this, this and this and spiritism. But this is Israel, folks. The place has gotten so dark that it seems like Everywhere Jesus goes, he runs into demon-possessed people. What happened to these people? The, the place that was supposed to be a light to the nations, I'm sure that some people who were walking around and watching what was happening, even in the temple, people like Anna and Simeon, who were hoping for the consolation of Israel, I'm sure that they looked at their own nation, and probably like a lot of you do after you watch a half an hour of news reports and go, There's, this is a hopeless place. It's, sometimes we look at what's going on and we say, Lord, it has become so dark. Is there any light? Is there any hope? And the one who is light came. And the man who has an unclean spirit is sitting in the synagogue. How long did he sit there? Until he was confronted with the truth. Until he was actually made uncomfortable in his position. Now I know in you know, demon possession, the, the moral character of the spirit kind of mingles with the, the character of the person. So, you know, who knows, you know, how that all plays out in terms of control. But the spirit couldn't handle it when truth, the truth, was coming at him. And Jesus had come to confront uh, the, the one who is over the kingdom of darkness, Satan. He had just dealt with him in the wilderness, and now he's dealing with his spirits. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. It's important that Mark sets this up this way because if Jesus can't deal with the demonic powers, then how can he set people free? And so look at this. This is Matthew 12. This is verse 43. Matthew 12, 43. Jesus says, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, Matthew 12, 43 it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Matthew 12, 44. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be, this is scary, you guys, with this evil generation. And here's Jesus' point, and this is so important, because he comes to the lost sheep of Israel, and he has compassion on them. He looks at them in Matthew 9 and sees them scattered and weighed down like sheep without a shepherd. And he tells the apostles, he says, look, 
pray to the Lord of the harvest that more workers will go out into that mission field. But the danger is that someone would come to the Messiah, hear the preaching of the word of God, and maybe experience deliverance or physical healing. We're about to see this, and this is very important to set up the rest of this message. Maybe experience deliverance from demonism or demonic possession and physical healing, but not be converted. The house is swept, but not occupied. So yeah, it's been cleaned out of the previous problem. So someone might say, hey, I encountered Jesus today and I'm no longer ill. Or someone might say, hey, my friend, I brought him to this synagogue service and he was delivered. But if the Holy Spirit does not come to dwell within that person, Jesus says something sobering. He says it looks clean, but in reality it's not. Back to Mark, if you would. And in fact, the worst, the, uh, the latter state of that individual might be worse than the first state. Wow. It's one thing to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. It's yet another thing to be converted. And Jesus, you know, he addresses the, the apostles in the upper room. He's washed their feet. And he said to them, He who's bathed needs only to wash his feet and is completely clean. And you are clean, John 13.10. But not all of you, for he knew the one who would betray him, and that was Judas, and Judas was an actor. He was putting on a show. He had a mask on. He was the ultimate hypocritas. He was a hypocrite. And so notice what happens now. The Spirit responds. This is Mark 1.24, saying, What do what we have to do with you? Um, one scholar, William Lane, says you could have this, you have no business with us yet. Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? Notice this testimony. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You know, it is, isn't it interesting that the demons know who he is and people haven't quite figured it out? James 2.19 says the demons believe that God is one. By the way, God is one is from Deuteronomy 6. It's the Shema, hear O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The demons are orthodox in their theology. The, de the demons believe God is one, but they have one better than most people. And they, what? Shudder. So, you track the demons that Jesus encounters throughout the Gospels and their testimony of him, of him is, you're the Son of God, you're the Holy One. They know who He is. Everybody else is going, I'm not sure who He is. I, I don't know. How many miracles does He have to do? After all, He did walk out of a tomb after being killed. Isn't that enough? I don't know. And so they say, is it judgment time? Have you come to destroy us? And Jesus, you got to love Jesus. Remember, this is all happening in the synagogue. This is great. <laughs> Jesus rebuked him and said, Be quiet! <laughs> it's biblical. <laughs> I, know, I know some of you have changed those two words to shut up. <laughs> 
I would be very careful how you utilize those two words. But anyway, literally, this is be muzzled. You almost get the picture of the spirit trying to talk. And <laughs> Just me. Anyway, and throwing him into convulsions. I think some people said, we're going to find another synagogue after today. I, I'm a little too radical. <laughs> what do you think? The unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. I don't know all that was going on there. I'd like film footage. But some weird convulsions are happening. The, I don't know if you're foaming at the mouth. There's other places that that happens. And somehow the spirit comes out. Now, can you imagine if you're a person there, sitting there? There's nobody sleeping. Whoa. Talk about authority. Do you know, the Sabbath, its essence, Shabbat, means rest. Think about it. Jesus has come into the synagogue on Shabbat. If you look at the Hebrew picture language, the, the word Sabbath actually means to return to the covenant. Here's a man who's been dominated. In fact, when we see demon possession cases and we track them in Scripture, one of the goals seems to be to disfigure an individual to the degree that the image of God in them is ruined. That seems to be the goal. It seems to be part of the, if you will, the mockery of the kingdom of darkness. And so here's the Sabbath day. And I'm sure Sabbath has the idea of both resting, worshiping. You could call the Sabbath a time of rest and reflection. And I'm sure a lot of people went home and reflected that day. What does this mean? They were all amazed. Look at verse 27. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves. And they said, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Do you remember when he's on the sea later in Mark 4? He's sleeping on the cushion and it gets, it gets difficult out there and they say, Lord, they wake him up, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus says to the ocean or to the sea, be quiet. And it obeys him and the apostles go, who then is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And a statement is being made in the gospel and you've got to see it. Jesus is showing his identity by his dominance or authority over everything. Over the kingdom of darkness, the demonic realm. He'll, have, he'll show his authority over death, as we'll see in the gospel. He shows his authority over disease. He shows his authority over every realm of life. And if you're one of those fishermen in the early days of ministry, you have to be saying, wow. Wow. I don't think they could have fully fathomed who he was and what exactly was going to happen next. So notice what happens. Verse 28, Immediately the news about him went out everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee, and you could imagine why. And immediately after they had come out uh, of the synagogue, or as soon as they left NIV, they came into the house of Simon. Now I showed you some uh, ruins of what they believe is Simon's house. The house of Simon and Andrew, they were brothers. James and John were there, and so that's the early fishermen, and they were partners in the fishing business. Now, Simon's mother-in-law, 
was lying sick with a fever. And immediately they spoke to him about her. Now, when you got done with your Sabbath or Shabbat services, you have a meal at about noon. And typically the women would prepare that meal. So it's likely that uh, Simon's mother-in-law was supposed to be cooking the Shabbat meal. But she, and I don't know if they left her this way or if she was starting to not feel well and then it got worse, but she had a fever, which could be very deadly, especially in that day. She was lying sick with a fever and immediately they spoke to him about her. Now, uh, you know, if you got a family member that's sick and you've been hanging around uh, the Messiah for a, a few weeks or whatever it's been, you, you got to start thinking, hey, uh, it'd be nice if we could eat. Why don't we just tell Jesus? <laughs> Sorry, that's the wrong motive. But anyway, <laughs> no, the truth is I feel really bad that my mother-in-law is sick. Let's tell Jesus. And so they did. They shared, they made requests on her behalf, says Luke 4.38. It's a beautiful picture of intercession, by the way. When someone else is hurting, we go to Jesus and we say, Lord, we need your help on this one. Do you please touch my family member? A wonderful picture of intercessory prayer. They spoke to him about her and he came to her. This is the beauty of the master's touch. And he raised her up, taking her by the hand. And the fever left her, almost like the spirit leaving the demon-possessed man. And she waited on them. This is the beauty of the Master's touch. Luke 4.39 in a parallel account says, Standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and she immediately arose and waited on them. Just like he rebuked the evil spirit, He rebukes even fevers, and they go. And his condescension, here's the picture. She's on a bed. He looks down at her. He reaches out a hand. And he rebukes the sickness and raises her up. And that's a picture of the incarnation. It's a picture of the gospel. This is what he does. He sees us in this position of being... uh, dead in our sins and trespasses and he speaks the word over us and he raises us up to new life and once he does you can't help but serve him and that's what Peter's mother-in-law did she was touched by him and maybe you know for the rest of the meal as they serve different portions of the meal maybe she kept saying feel my forehead feel my forehead I was red hot, and then he came in, and he reached down. It wasn't, yeah, yeah, mom, mom, yeah, we know. No, no, go feel it. Feel it again. Go ahead. Now, how many of you have a mother, when you were growing up, if there was any sign of a fever, you got the treatment? My mother did the kiss test. She'd put her lips to my forehead. That was better than any thermometer or anything like that. Let me, let me see. Come over here. Ma, ma, come over here. Give it the lip test. I don't know. You, you're a little warm. When I was going up, I'd say, yeah, I don't feel good. I, yeah, I probably should stay home. <laughs> what a lunch that must have been. Feel my forehead. I think people in Simon's house probably were saying after feeling her forehead, That's cool. Do you know that's where that phrase came from? That's cool. (laughs) But you don't believe that? (laughs) And when evening had come, 32. Boy, that was a weak attempt at humor, wasn't it? 
I was writing that in my notes the other night, and I started laughing, so I thought maybe you would laugh. Anyway, (laughs) and when the evening had come after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill. The sun setting would be the end of Shabbat, and I think people maybe felt more free to move, obviously with the restrictions on the Sabbath. So notice it says, they were bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. So there was more of them. And the whole city had gathered at the door. Now, if it's your house, I'm sure there's some family discussion going on. Sheesh. Everybody in the town's at the front door. And here they are, all these broken people pushing at the door of Simon's house. And Simon's going to begin to get a picture of what ministry's about. All these broken people in the world. Are they trying to get in those doors? Do we show enough of the truth of the gospel that they might say, you know what? There's life to be found. Something's happening in that church or this church. I sure pray that that's the case. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And the light of the world on a Capernaum night shone his light. And person after person after person was being set free from illness and demonic possession. Man, can you imagine if you were there? I mean, one healing would have been enough to celebrate... The, the experience at the synagogue and Peter's mother-in-law would have been enough to say, this has been a good day. This has been an insightful day. But person after person, and I'm sure that the fishermen were just probably watching and going, wow. He is extending his hand to all these broken people and making, giving them a wholeness. What a day. And in the early morning, we're going to just go up to verse 39 this morning. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. I wonder, what do you think he prayed about? You know, after that night, that long night of activity, you would have thought, well, maybe he would have slept in. (laughs) But no, he's up early. He goes out to what some scholars consider like a wilderness place, a lonely place, tying back to the wilderness tradition because that's his mission to go and and deal with the biggest problem man has, which is sin, and he's praying. He told Peter later in the Gospel of Luke, even though the devil had been asking for Peter by name, that he had prayed for him. Was he praying for Peter? Was he saying, Father, Peter has seen a lot just in this day. Keep him on track. Because I know the enemy's after these fishermen. Was he saying, communing in such a way with his father that he was getting direction on the next place? I don't know how to break it all down, but Simon and his companions, 36, hunted for him. And they found him and they said to him, everyone's looking for you. <laughs> I'm sure it was probably like another big line at the door of Peter's house and they said, we've got to get out of here. Is there a back door to this place? Yeah. Let's go find him. Where is he? I don't know. Where is he? I don't know. He got up early. 
And they hunted for him, idea. They looked everywhere for him. And finally they find him praying. What a lesson. You see, Jesus is trying to teach something even there. Great night of ministry. We could rest on our laurels the next day. Wow, that was great. Yeah, wasn't that great? Pass the coffee. Yeah, that's great. Jesus praying. You see, oftentimes when God does big things in our lives, we can become very vulnerable. We don't realize this. Oftentimes when we've been used by God and something good and positive has happened, we become a target for the enemy and Jesus will have none of it. And so he goes and he prays and there's a lesson for up and coming fishermen of men. And they had to be thinking, Lord, this is great. Let's just set up shop. Let's print some business cards. And he said to them, 38, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby in order that I may preach there also. Mark this, for that is what I came out for. I mean, if you're one of the apostles, you have to be saying, Lord, are you sure? Do you not remember what happened last night? (laughs) The whole town wants you. Uh, Just newsflash, Lord, you weren't too popular in Nazareth. Things are going well in Capernaum. I was a little scared. I was wondering whether I could stick it out after they almost threw you off the brow of the hill in your hometown. Now, everybody loves you. We're printing posters. (laughs) Come on, Lord. You can't be serious. Yeah, let's go to the other towns. He doesn't say, I have more healing to do. He says, I have what? I've got to go teach. You see... Healing, and this is very important, healing by virtue of what it is, is only temporal, temporary. I know, because we're we're all human, that when we have a besetting sickness or someone that we love that's sick, we so deeply desire their physical healing. Because when you're not well, you know, life is hard. And we pray for healing and we pray, Lord, would you touch that person? And prayer requests stream onto the prayer chain and and look, we have a heart of compassion and so does Jesus. But his main mission was not to bring temporal healing to people. His main mission was to heal the soul. He was wounded for our transgressions and he is one who heals the soul. So he says, this is why I came. I was sent for this purpose. I must preach to the other cities. And so he moved on. I want to show you, as we wind this message down, one more cross-reference, Matthew 11. And I was doing some final preparation yesterday, and I started asking this question. I started saying, Lord... What happened to Capernaum? I mean, I know you can visit what is the, they believe is the historical site today, but what happened to this place? How many people were changed? For how many people was it an eternal decision of salvation and not just a temporal deliverance with looking clean but not being saved, if you will? In Matthew eleven twenty, here's what I came across. It says, then Jesus, Matthew eleven twenty, began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done. 
Do you know on that Capernaum night, Jesus touched so many people that he probably did more miracles on that night in Capernaum than he did than was done in the entire Old Testament. Just on one night. Person after person was coming. And he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they what? Matthew eleven twenty, they did not what? You know, Jesus comes out and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he says, Woe to you, Chorazon. Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And then I came across this. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And I was reading my Bible, and I was on a cloud. This sometimes happens to me in Bible study. I was thinking of that that event in Capernaum and the synagogue and Peter's house and his mother-in-law and all these people experiencing physical healing and deliverance from demonic possession and praising God and I was ready to close my study and say, awesome! And then I came across this verse and I went, oh no. It would seem that in Capernaum, although I'm sure that some people were genuinely converted, that people came to Jesus for deliverance from disease, to get a family member who was a trouble to everybody around, a touch. And yet, apparently, not even apparently, as a whole, according to Jesus' words, they largely did not repent. And I have in my notes these words. Capernaum was the base of operation for Jesus' ministry. It was called his own city. What if Jesus added these words? And you, Corona. And you, Riverside County. And you, Orange County. If the churches and Bible teaching and opportunities for spiritual life in you were available in Sudan or China, they would have... Fill in the blank. See, I, as a human being, love when I can just sit in a chair and observe and I don't have to deal with any of my own stuff. It's convenient. But then I look at this and say, if Jesus were in this city and he looked at our privileges and experiences, what would he say? Now the Lord is gracious. In verse 39 in Mark 1 as we conclude, says, and he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee. So he didn't stop doing what he was doing, preaching and casting out the demons. And he stood before Pilate. And Pilate has that famous exchange to him with him and says, what is truth? And truth was standing in front of him. And Jesus said, for this reason I've been born, for this reason I came into the world, that I might bear witness of the truth Everyone who's of the truth, what? 
hears my voice. How many truly heard that day? How many were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of lies to the kingdom of truth? Have you heard his voice? Has he touched your soul? Have you been converted? If you have, praise God. God is good and he's gracious. But he has something more for us than for us just to come to the master's table for what he might give us and then when he doesn't come through for us, we bail. Now he's saying, look, come into the kingdom and I'll show you what life is about. Father, thank you for, oh, this truth, it's so rich and yet so penetrating. It's so glorious and yet at the same time it so reveals the heart of humanity. They witnessed the light and yet for so many of them they just came for the temporal advantage and not necessarily for the one who had come to save. Lord, our own hearts can be deceptive sometimes and we don't always maybe even measure our motives correctly. But in the light of your word, we can at least take a look. And it's a positive thing to look at truth because we can certainly adjust our lives to what you might say to us. And I know in this room, there's the body of Christ and the Spirit lives in us and we have hope and truth. But Lord, we want to make sure we're on track with who you are and why you came. Came to bring eternal deliverance. And you said, my sheep, they know my voice. They hear my voice, they follow me. And I give them eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for that gift of eternal life. It's a gift. It's not something we work for. We want to make sure that at the end of this message we know it's not something we work for. It's something that is a gift, but it must be received through saving faith and through repentance. And so, Lord, help us to take a look. And even as sometimes as we're Christians, we realize that repentance is also for the church. It's not just for unbelievers. It's a time maybe to just make some minor tweaks for some of us. Some of us may need an overhaul, but we just pray that you would do your work as only you can. We lay this, the rest of this time at your feet. May your Holy Spirit work in our hearts and speak to us. Whatever's been from me, let people quickly forget. Whatever's been from you, Lord, and from your spirit, let it percolate in our souls. Let us meditate on it, reflect on it, and act upon it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.